Hello, I'm Dave Craybill with IHEMP Michigan. We're live on the IHEMP Hour. IHEMP Michigan's mission is to educate, inform, and promote the research, development, and cultivation of industrial hemp here in Michigan. IHEMP Michigan advocates for wellness in people and the planet through hemp. And it begins with the farmer. We're talking regenerative ag today. I love this. Uh, I saw Robin's presentation. Uh, thank you, Robin, for joining us today. Robin Pop from Pop Farms. But uh, let, let's say hi to our my co-host here, uh, Blaine Bechtold, partner in crime. You survived the expo? Uh, yeah. You know, we're uh, getting back in the saddle. It uh, was nice to take a couple of weeks off to kind of regroup and re-get things going here. But glad to be back on, um, certainly. And uh, for those of you that may not be aware, Dave and uh, Mike and maybe Robin, do you know what this month is in hell? Is it uh, history? There you go. Yay, Robin. Yay. Robin gets a Frisbee, Dave. Just so <laughs> you know. So, all right. So, yeah, this is uh, Hemp History Month. So, uh, pretty exciting. A lot of great things going on. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And I've got a little news to share on that. Uh, so, again, quite a bit of news actually later in the show. Since we've been off for a few weeks, a number of things have happened that everybody needs to be brought up on. So, we'll have that about mid part of the show. Excellent. And yeah, Mr. Brennan. Yep. That would be me. Uh, so I represent the dark side of the force above point three. Uh, and I was kind of amused when we I saw who we were having on the show today, Pot Farms. And so I was thinking of my audience, but uh, uh, clearly not. So, yeah, I look forward. To, I, I missed your presentation at the expo. So I look forward to hearing about regenerative farming. All right. So, Robin, yeah, I, I enjoyed your presentation. Uh, Robin Robin Pot is the creator, co-founder of Pot Farms L3C, a regenerative hemp company in Willis, Michigan. What does it mean to be regenerative? It means that our systems are designed to restore and sustain rather than deplete our resources and that they are rooted in justice. I mean, that sounds cool. For the past four years, Robin has been practicing regenerative farming and learning about living soil while cultivating hemp naturally. She comes from a 20-year academic career as a child advocate and has designed the farm to also provide job opportunities for youth from disadvantaged backgrounds. So welcome, Robin. Uh, I, you have a, you know, we're so glad to have you here, and I, I know you have a presentation to dive into whenever you're ready. All right. Well, um, thanks so much, uh, Dave, Blaine, and Mike, for uh, having me today. I'm very excited to be here to be talking about living soil and how it can help you build resiliency in your crops and in your businesses. Okay. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, and before I start talking, I always like to kind of orient the audience and get a sense of where the audience is in terms of what I'm talking about. So I'm going to start with a few questions. And I know the audience can't answer, but I'm going to ask um, Dave, Blaine, and Mike. Uh-oh. 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 Yeah, uh-oh. So um, what percentage of you is actually microbial life that is not you? And this is the cells in and on your body. 70%. All right, I'm going to take 20. Uh, I'm going to go 80 just to be higher. <laughs> it's not one of the choices, Dave. Well, uh, oh. oh, I wasn't looking at the screen. I'm sorry. Oh, well, that's I funny. That's really good instinct. <laughs> Uh, because at any given time, you are actually made up of 70 to 90% of 
of the cells in and on you are microbial life that are not your DNA. Okay, it only makes one up to one to three percent of your body weight, but lot, the majority of your cells are not you. Okay, and I have another one. Um, what percentage of microbes that we know in the world are harmless to humans that either benefit us or at least don't harm us? Ninety-nine percent. I'm going to go with ninety-nine. Yep. I'm going to say ten percent. I'm going to go the other way. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, greater than 99% of the known microbes in the world uh, are harmless to humans. Okay. So, and at this point, you're probably asking, like, what does this have to do with farming? What does this have to do with regenerative practices? And um, the answer is really everything. And I ask these questions, whoops, there's the answer. And I ask these questions just to kind of get you to start, um, open your mind to the, to the reality that microbes are everywhere. And for me, this is my definition of what regenerative farming is. Regenerative farming is cultivating the soil microbial life so that your plants can take care of themselves. Regenerative farming is about cultivating the life in the soil. And so today I'm gonna to talk about three things. The first thing I'm gonna talk about is the soil food web. What it is, who's there, what they do, how the whole system works, okay? That's really like all the other regenerative farming practices will make sense if you have a foundational understanding of what living soil is. So we're gonna start there. And then I'm gonna talk about um, the four core practices to regenerative farming and how they cultivate the soil microbial life. And then I'll wrap up with listing several reasons how using these practices build resiliency in your in your farming systems but also in your businesses okay and even beyond so that's what we're doing today and then we'll open up for questions there's going to be a break near um i mean about 30 minutes and we'll open it for up for questions so let's start with the soil food web and i'm going to get my pointer here uh where is it i learned this before the Meeting. Oh, if you have questions out there uh, today, go ahead and send them in on the uh, chat line and we'll have them ready for when Robin gets done with her presentation. Yeah, great. So the soil food web, this is the foundational uh, piece that you need to understand. And this is from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, this very basic illustration. The soil food web starts with living plants, photosynthesizing with air and water. They produce sugars and proteins that a lot of ends up being fed through the roots of their systems and out into the soil. And we'll talk about these functions and how they all tie together. And I'll be connecting dots as we go. But first, photosynthesizing plants, and then they die and you've got your organic matter in the soil. And this next part, you know, you can see insects and worms and birds and mammals with your eyes. I'm gonna be talking and showing you pictures of the microbial life. We're gonna be talking about bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, and microarthropods, okay? So part of some of the training that I've done in recent years, I've been trained to use a microscope to assess the life in the soil and see who's there and if they're in the right numbers. So I am gonna start showing, whoop, where are you? Whoops, there we go, it's just delayed. So, Here's the first picture. This is a photo I took with my microscope and the foundation of the soil food web are bacteria. So 
anything with a smooth round edge in this photo is a bacterium. They're everywhere. You'll see them in all these other photos. And um, this is a drop of water on a slide magnified 400 times. All these photos are, okay? So what do bacteria do? Bacteria do a couple things. One, they produce glues that they attach themselves to whatever they're decomposing, either organic matter or mineral matter. And then they're, they're very specialized. There's countless numbers of bacteria, and, but each one does one very specific thing. And that is they produce a specific enzyme, whatever their specialty is, and they pull one nutrient off that dead leaf or that rock at a time. So if it's built to produce, um, to decompose nitrogen, it's going to yank off one nitrogen off that uh, very slowly. So they're gluing themselves and decomposing one molecule at a time, one nutrient at a time. They are also, because they're gluing themselves to these bits, they're starting to build aggregates. These are micro aggregates, starting to glue the bits of the soil together. But for the most part, there's just, this is just dirt with bacteria in it, okay? Then the, la the most important thing they do is they're the foundational food for everybody else just about in the soil food web. And you'll understand that in a bit later. We'll talk a little bit more about that. The next member of the soil food web that's important to know are the fungi. And fungi are a huge topic. I can't even begin to discuss all the wonderful things fungi do. But for this talk and to understand their role in this whole system in regenerative farming is, is important to know one, they are building these mycelium. These are their strands of fungi going through the soil, searching for food. Uh, this is one single strand. Can you see my screen and everything? And the, is the pointer working? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, the important thing to know is they're um, decomposing more complex organic matter, like woody material. Um, and they are, you know, there's a strand, they're going in different directions, and then they start to pull together those micro aggregates that the bacteria are gluing together to form bigger aggregates. And this is what soil structure looks like at a microscopic scale. You say soil structure is so important. This is what it looks like. And we'll touch again about on this particular issue in the, a little bit later. But right now I'm just introducing who's here and what they're doing. And I, I should say fungi do all sorts of things. They form mutualistic relationships with plants. We're not gonna touch on any of that, um, but uh, there's their important piece of all this for the for the reasons I just um, stated. The next group are the protozoa. These are freshwater animals that live in the water amongst the, the, the organic matter and the minerals, and they are the grazers. So the bacteria and the fungi are decomposing matter and pulling nutrients off. That's their skill set. But those nutrients are then bound up in their bodies. The bacteria takes a nutrient and then multiplies and makes a new bacteria. That nutrient isn't available to the plant. The nutrients become available to the plants when these grazers are out in the soil uh, eating, digesting, and releasing their waste in plant available nutrients. So let me they talk about some of these fellows. They eat the bacteria and some eat the fungi. We'll get to those. But you can see this is an amoeba. This is a shell called a testate and you can see the amoeba sneaking out 
you know, grabbing just a blob, grabbing some bacteria, going back in the shell, digesting, and then releasing these uh, gases, these nutrients in, as waste that the plants could take up. Here's another, uh, there's amoeba that lives in this shell doing the same thing. It'll come out, go back in, digest. This is a ciliate, it has a bunch of hairs. It's zooming around in that water, digesting, releasing waste. This is a flagellate, has a, you see its sw tail swimming around the water. So these are in there and that's nutrient cycling. So the bacteria and the fungi are decomposing. These grazers are eating the bacteria and fungi and releasing waste that the plants can access the nutrients. Hmm. Um, another category are the nematodes. These are microscopic worms. There's four different types. The bottom one is a bacteria feeder, as you know, fan we call those fancy lips. This is this kind of nematode eats fungi. It has a spear that's sticks it into the, the mycelium and sucks out its juices. Um, they're also root feeding nematodes. These give nematodes a bad name. You might've heard nematodes before because uh, this category is detrimental to your plants. It'll feed on my plant roots, um, weakening them. But there's a fourth category and those are called predator nematodes. And they eat other nematodes and their favorite type of nematode to eat are the root feeders. Oh. So three of the four types of nematodes are your friends. They're in there consuming the bacteria and the fungi, digesting, releasing waste, and plant available nutrients, right? So this is the nutrient cycling that's happening. Oh. And then another layer up um, that is still microscopic are the microarthropods. And these are multicellular. This is a, you might have heard of a tardigrade or a water bear is what one looks like. Um, this is a mite over here. This is a leg of a bigger microarthropod. Sometimes you just find the leg and you're like, oh, someone lost their leg. Um, but you know they're in there. So they're uh, not only eating the, the bacteria and the fungi, digesting and releasing waste, they're also tunneling and moving those microaggregates around and making passageways for air, water, and roots. So like the earthworms on a visual scale, we can see earthworms and insects doing that on a microscopic layer level, the microarthropods are doing that kind of work too. So it's building the soil structure slowly as you go up the food chain. Hmm. So those are the main characters. Um, there's a lot, there's many more that I could talk about, but those are kind of the big categories. Let's talk about the importance of plants in this system. Oh, let me check my notes really quick. Make sure There's I'm not. There's a whole world going on down there in the dirt. Whole world. I know, it looks like a bad science science fiction movie to me. <laughs> it is scary. If you were, you know, yeah, if you were little uh, bacteria, yeah. Um, or if they were eye size, holy cow, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. So there is this whole world down there, and the organism that's in charge are the plants. The plants are orchestrating the nutrient cycling. So plants photosynthesize. Their intelligence, um, they have this intelligence that they are able to produce very specific sugars and carbohydrates. They're called exudates. They send these signals into the soil as food 
and the soil life responds. This plant can say, hey guys, in the soil, I need some potassium, a little bit of copper, a little bit of zinc, and some uh, calcium. The life is responding to that and bacteria go get it. The grazers eat the bacteria and the plant gets what it needs. So whatever nutrient cycling is happening below ground is being orchestrated by what the plant is demanding above ground. Okay. That's an important piece. And then the last key piece to understand in what regenerative farming is all about is succession. Now you probably remember this from high school biology, maybe, uh, or familiar with, you know, we, those who are farming, what succession is, but it's basically the natural succession of more and more complex plants over time. And it is based on the soil. It is based on the balance between bacteria and fungi in the soil. So you've got early succession where you've got disturbed soil, you've got all bacteria, no fungi, probably not a lot of predators or grazers in the soil, and you've got weeds. And we call them weeds but I really like to think of them as first responders because they're really designed to begin the healing process of soil. They're gonna grow deep roots. They're gonna grow quickly. They're gonna have a lot of seeds that disperse easily far and wide. They're gonna start the photosynthesizing, sending the food into the soil. They're gonna start dying back, adding organic level matter. And as you get farther into that process, you got, you know, then you get to grasses, vegetables, row crops, shrubs, flower, uh, flowering, fruiting trees, big deciduous trees, conifers into old growth. That's the succession. You've got early, mid, and late succession. Regenerative farmers aim for mid-succession soil. This is the most productive phase of succession. This is the most resilient phase of succession. So this is all bacteria, in early succession, almost all fungi in old growth. Mid-succession is a balance. I mean, there's fine tuning to be done depending on what crop you're after, but basically a balanced mix of fungi and bacteria for this productive soil, okay? So that is the whole soil food web. That's how the whole system works. Now let me tell, talk about, switch kind of topics a little bit and talk about practices or principles of regenerative farming that lead to cultivating this system below the soil, right? I'm gonna list them and then I'll go into detail about each of them. Using compost, reduced tilling or disturbance, year round cover plants and cultivating diversity or polycultures, okay? That's it. Now each of these, I could talk all day on each of these, but you know, just to give you an idea of, you know, what the universe of these practices are, it's these four. Let's talk about compost. Compost is, uh, it, it, you want to use really good compost, well-made, aerobic, good mixture of brown and greens. Um, and we use compost in lots of ways. We can put it out in the field as is. We can make an extract and spray it out as a soak into the soils. We can make teas where you're brewing uh, and really increasing that life in that tea um, over a couple of days. Um, and we also like to use it as mulch around our plants um, to 
keep the soil cool and moist. And as it decomposes, it adds its CO2 to the plant right at its base to give that plant a boost of carbon dioxide, which is good for them. They like that. Uh, um, and why you wanna use this is because it's gonna inoculate your soil with the life. Really well-made compost is gonna be chock full of those, uh, those members of the soil food web and putting them out uh, in your soil, will they'll multiply and they'll spread. Um, and that using compost is an excellent way of doing that. Now, do you mix mix the compost into the soil, or is it you just lay it on top? We lay it on top. We use, we usually just are, are laying it on top. And it, just and adding it, it like yeah. it's top down because the rain it'll come down. Because okay. if you bury compost too far, it could get blocked into an airtight um, pocket, and then air's not getting in there, and then it goes anaerobic, and there's I, you should have me on to talk about anaerobic conditions. It's bad. So, um, but yeah, we're just on top. And um, I wanted a couple other points. Oh, animal component. A lot of times when you look at, you know, you research regenerative agriculture, it's going to be like, you're going to need an animal component. Well, that's a lot for beginning farmers and for many farmers. We use animal manures in our composting system. So our animal component is coming through our composting system. Okay. The next of the four practices is, is reduced tilling. And I think this is probably the scariest one for farmers. And it's not no-till. I think no-till is a, is a misnomer that, that scares people. We avoid tilling. And when we do have to do a disturbance, we know that we need to do work to, to restore the soil back to a mid-succession soil. So one of the things, our favorite way, way to reduce tilling is to just sheet mulch. We don't disturb the soil will build up. And so this is one of our first, this is our first garden that we built in 2018. We use reclaimed cardboard, freely available with a little work, um, reclaimed wood chips on top of that, uh, also freely available with a little work, um, utility companies, tree trimming companies, um, and then compost on top of that. And we, you know, rent a dump trailer and, and, and bring it in commercially because um, we uh, can't produce that much on our small scale farm. But then we rake the compost into our beds. And this is a drone picture. This is, we call it our mandala garden. It's 50 foot diameter and it's a, a mandala is a repeating pattern garden. And um, so this is what we sheet mulch this. So no tilling, we just, it was additive, okay? The third of the four practices are annual year-round cover plants. And there's a gold standard here uh, is to figure out how to get a perennial cover plant mix established in your fields. So going back to no-till, we did till once. These are, this was our, our, in our pilot field. We tilled once in the fall, and we then seeded it with a mix of uh, cover plants, a diverse set of cover plants. There's 22 different kinds of seeds. There's flowers, grasses, grains, legumes, um, mostly perennials, but some annuals to kind of get that going faster. This is what it looks like in the fall. Last year, the um, black-eyed Susans really kind of dominated um, because of whatever conditions there were that year. This is what the field looked like this spring. We sheet mulched these hills in this cover plant. 
and we plant directly into these hills. Now, why do you want year-round plants? Going back to the soil food web, remember the life in the soil is dependent heavily on the photosynthesates, the exudates that the plant is sending into the soil. Food for the microbial life is coming from living plants. And when that food is cut off, the soil food web dramatically declines. So perennial living roots in your soil year round. And we, one more thing is like, we um, planted a mix that grew, nothing grows higher than 18 inches and we mow through about June. And after June, the plants are big enough. We don't mow and the plants are, our hemp plants are, are, are on their own. They're above the fray and they're out in the sun. Hmm. And they have this so, living carpet around them. So, Robin, these yeah. little these circles that you're planting into, is this where you're putting planting hemp plants in here or you're hmm. planting other hemp plants? Okay. Yep. We're primarily, we're, you know, our main crop is hemp. Um, we're producing for CBD. We have done a fiber trial in 2020, um, but we're still really focused on the CBD production, the cannabinoid production. And then the fourth principle practice is you're really cultivating diversity in your soil. Remember the plants are directing the nutrient cycling and the more diverse plants you have, the more diverse nutrient cycling you're going to have. So whenever, whatever your hemp plant needs at any given time, it's going to be in the soil because you have all these other plants guaranteeing that there's going to be a healthy, diverse mix of nutrients in your soil. So looking at this picture, this is doing lots of things for us. So you can see our hemp plant in this background right here. This is the understory. There's sweet alisum and marigold that are attracting beneficial insects to our garden. There's hairy vetch here, which is a legume. It's gonna be fixing nitrogen. Um, phone. Sorry about that. There is a gourd vine crawling through here. So we're producing food in our system. There is a comfrey right here, which is a dynamic bioaccumulator. It has deep roots, it's pulling nutrients that these other plants can't access up to the, the, to the higher horizons of the soil. And then it dies back and makes it available to our plants. So this is all uh, things that we intentionally cultivated. And if you can see here, there's no weeds. Yeah. No weeds. They don't have a chance. <laughs> they don't have a chance. Well, it also has to do with the, with the soil. We have cultivated mid-succession soil. Weeds wake up in bacteria-dominated early-succession soil. Mm. The seed coating is triggered, germination is triggered under the right conditions. So when I, I said this, it seemed to be a light bulb for you, Dave, during the expo, but like, have you ever tilled a garden bed and a week later you have a new crop of weeds? That's because you, if you had you know, a balanced succession soil and you tilled it, your fungi levels dramatically decrease, your bacteria levels dramatically increase because you flipped organic matter into the air and they start decomposing it. And the, and the seeds from weeds are gonna be like, oh, hey, we're in the right conditions to germinate and you're gonna get weeds. And that's because you changed the composition of your soil. That's a big part of it. Yeah, I was, when my wife and I were planting some tomato plants in a little area, um, her first instinct was for me to clear out the garden. It's like, no, 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 don't do that. 
We'll just clear out where we're going to plant and let, let's just throw some grass clippings around everywhere else, you know, cover it up. So, that's exactly that's a great instinct. Have let me know how that works well, out. From your talk that I awesome. learned about the soil, it's like, yeah, so yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how it does. Less, less weeding is awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, if you get if you main if you minimize tillage and you inoculate with the soil food web and you have a diverse set of uh photosynthites going into the soil feeding a diverse set of microbes your weeds won't wake up they're like this isn't the soil we prefer awesome so let's talk about cultivating resiliency this is the third part of the talk how do all these practices cultivate resiliency in your farm system right water retention number one so looking back at these photos bacteria dominated soil water is flying through here just going through it taking the nutrients if it's the soil like this is often compacted so the water is running off of it right versus soil aggregates soil that looks like this the soil the water is clinging to these clumps pooling in these corners and it's going to stay put okay this is how soil structure improves water retention there's a photo of it another benefit is it's going to retain your nutrients. So if your water is staying put, your nutrients are staying put. They're not running off. They're not leaching down to the bedrock. Okay. Nutrient cycling. We talked quite a bit about this, but you've got the decomposers being eaten, releasing waste, feeding the plants. So between these three benefits, you're greatly reducing your irrigation costs. If you know, maybe even down to zero, there's no need to, for fertilizers because you've got to have every nutrient that you need right in place because you have those microbes doing the work for you. Okay. And then some other ones that we haven't talked about today, but healthy plants can protect themselves from pests and disease and healthy plants are plants that have everything they need. So if you have these systems in plant place, your plants are going to have everything they need to do their own fighting. So there's no need for pesticides or fungicides. Weed suppression. We talked about this. You're cultivating the right kind of soil. Weeds aren't going to wake up. Weed suppression. Mm -hmm. That's going to save you on herbicides. And the kind of a bigger, you get up, you know, kind of bigger picture, you know, resiliency in terms of, you know, humanity on the planet. You're going to be capturing and, car and, and storing carbon. There's many ways that soils and, and living plants do that. But one, I wanted to highlight this, one of my favorite pictures. This is fungi. Fungi store carbon. You can see it clearly in these pictures. They consume carbon, and then as they grow, they shellac the insides of their mycelium with it. These black borders, that's carbon. Hmm. That's carbon. That's all carbon. So increasing your fungi level, increasing your ability to store carbon. This could come into handy when we get into carbon trade, um, carbon credits. This is part of the carbon sequestration, measuring how much your fungi is storing for the world and getting paid for it. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. And then, you know, also, you know, habitat for biodiversity that I could, that's, we, that's key to saving our wildlife and, 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 
protecting our animals. I can go on and on about that, but I'm going to pause because there's also um, resiliency benefits for yourself, for your business. Uh, and I'm going to talk about, you know, what we do, what the benefits that we've seen on our farm in terms of, you know, um, lowering our costs and, and the benefits for the business. But I wanted to pause Fantastic. looking at the clock. It's perfect timing. Dave, we're going to take a break and uh, let the guys uh, do their stuff. All right. So we've got some news. This is our news segment. So uh, Blaine, you want to go first? Uh, I could do that. Certainly. I'll try to uh, make it as brief as I can, because I know Mike's got some really good news to share too. So um, I just want to give a nice shout out to National Farmers Union. They uh, were at the expo with us uh, as well, uh, exhibiting and sharing their story with uh, people that were there. And um, they've been a supporter for a long time. We've been working with them as well. And I, you know what? I was doing some research on Hemp History Month, right? Uh, this article came up about Hemp History Week. And this was actually an article from back in June 4th of 2012. So this is way before, you know, anything was really being talked too much about, about making industrial legal and putting it into the farm bill and everything else. And so I just want to give a shout out to the National Farmers Union for what they've been doing for years to get industrial help here. Um, so just a little, again, just a little brief expert here. Uh, hemp is an untapped opportunity for American farmers and Hemp History Week, which is what it was known back then, is a time to make our voices heard in support of bringing hemp back to the U.S. farms. Hemp is a traditional American crop grown by George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, but in 1930, misguided federal policy criminalized the cultivation of industrial hemp in the U.S., despite the fact that industrial hemp was no, has no drug value. The outdated policy has created a missed opportunity for American farmers and consumers alike. So back in 2012, um, National Farmers Union was doing their bit to try, to try to bring hemp in. So that's just one thing I want to talk about. Uh, big, big news that came out uh, just this last week, um, Dunn Agro Hemp Group Incorporated, the American corporation of the leading Dutch hemp company, said it will set up a North American headquarters and build its first U.S.-based processing facilities in Indiana. Dunn Agro, a global leader in the product development for fiber application and a pioneer with 28-year history in the reborn European hemp industry, said the Indiana operation will be modeled after its vertically integrated complex in Holland. Mich Holland, Holland, not Holland, Michigan. The Netherlands, yes. What's that? The, the Netherlands. So The, the Netherlands, say the yeah, Netherlands? Holland is actually like a I state I can't say the, the city. So, yeah, I would right. butcher the city really bad. Yeah. So, right. um, O-U-D-E-P-E-K-E-L-A. So if anybody can, or Duke Pikla. Uh, where the company has an environmentally friendly factory and turns out herd, fiber, and other hemp materials for a wide range of applications. So we're excited for Indiana. We're jealous, um, but we're excited for them. Uh, the U.S. facility is expected to be in operation in mid-2023. Now, in the article, they don't say where it's going to be located or anything else on it. They also talk about trying to work with uh, tribes as well. And um, so we've uh, reached out to them. Hopefully, we'll have some information back from them and be able to have them on the show in the near future to talk about. So um, I'm hoping that this is located uh, fairly close to the uh, Michigan border so that we can also uh, have some of our farmers participate and be able to expand their operations and be able to provide uh, hemp fiber to them as well. 
The Midwest Hemp Research Co uh, Collaborative uh, provides updated reminds growers that the 2020-2022 applications are due by July 16th. Uh, MDAR to put out an article on this, and we'll get one up on the uh, website as well. But uh, if you're looking at getting into that, um, uh, it's part of the database, and which is very, very important as we move forward to figure out what varieties or varietals are going to grow good here, whether it be CBD, whether it be for grain, or whether it be for fiber. So again, the applications are due by July 16th on that if you want to get in and be able to support that. In the past, uh, they gave some uh, discounts on uh, doing the testing for that. Uh, and again, all your all your information goes into a large database, and that's how we can figure some figure out what's going to happen good here um, going forward. A lot of things happening in Pennsylvania uh, this uh, this month and next month. Pennsylvania is really a uh, when you when you read about what's going on there. I I hope that our state can see what Pennsylvania is doing to help their uh, grow their hemp industry, and uh, we're looking forward to when that day can happen and we can work with them on that. But there's a, uh, uh, let's see, what is it called? Uh, Women of Weedville uh, is what it's putting out. And also Pennsylvania Hemp Festival is going to be going on. Uh, they've made an offer for uh, anybody that was uh, exhibitor at our expo to be able to be exhibited theirs with a discounted rate. Um, and that is going to happen in July. And let me find the date on that. Uh, July, Saturday, uh, July 30th. From 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., uh, they're going to have a children's discovery zone, PA farming forum, presentation displays of hemp speakers, um, live music, and a VIP party to follow. So we'll get more information on that, but a uh, great opportunity to participate in Pennsylvania for that. And also, uh, uh, let's, let's go PA uh, is another one that's having, having an event coming up in July as well. Oh, uh, let's see what else we got. Um, what, oh, big, big news that came out this week, too, was the federal courts and what they've decided on um, D8. So the federal courts have decided that D8 is legal uh, and it wasn't excluded from the um, uh, from the production of the industrial hemp plant. So that's going to change a lot of things going forward. A lot of states were trying to ban that. And so that's going to certainly make for some discussion and different uh, avenue that may be taken for D8 um, and get another market for uh, potentially for hemp farmers to be able to. Uh, and Michigan, uh, and they were, they, well, they changed it and it was going to go under what the cannabis regulatory agency, and then you'd have to buy it at dis licensed dispensaries or anything Delta eight. And I know several folks that were heavy in Delta eight and, Obviously, it almost killed their businesses suddenly because one in particular had like 1,500 customers around the country, and then suddenly the market went away. Not good. So this is, yeah, that's very good news here. Not only the hemp farmers, but a lot of folks that we deal with. Yeah, so it's going to be huge, uh, huge as that goes forward. So we'll see We'll see how that plays out. I mean, there's always been a controversy on that, and there probably still will be. But right now, federal courts confirmed Delta 8 THC is federally legal. So yep. on that. <laughs> Michael, I'll put some to you. I'll have some more news a little later in the show. Okay. Speaking of federally legal, uh, there's a survey came out and uh, it showed that uh, something in the neighborhood of 80% of the people surveyed, um, hopefully that was a good sample, were opposed to all the prohibitions on making adult use cannabis legal. In other words, only 20% 
of the U.S. population right now thinks that, that adult use or the, the use of marijuana should be banned. So it's just a question now of when is Congress going to do something? Certainly, I don't want to sound like I'm a politician because I'm not uh, probably far from it. But the Democrats have been trying to get it legalized and they keep running up against the, the Republicans in the Senate that for some reason don't want to do it. Uh, so uh, maybe now with these surveys coming out, showing so many people in America just say it's time to end the war on drugs and, you know, all that stuff that goes on with reefer madness that we were all indoctrinated with when we were young. And maybe it'll finally go away. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is uh, cannabis tourism now is starting to become kind of big in Michigan. We were, tourism is the number two industry in the state, and cannabis is the number three cash crop. So it seems like a good marriage, right? And so we had a couple of people on my show yesterday. I do 420 posts on Wednesdays at 1 o'clock on Facebook. And we had uh, one called Doongrass, which I was not familiar with, but they've got six dispensaries in northern Michigan. And they've now weaving a campaign that to, because, you know, northern Michigan, summertime, lots of tourists. And so they're playing the cannabis tourism campaign up there, uh, re revamping their website so that they can plug uh, folks into cannabis friendly hotels, motels, restaurants, bars, all that stuff. Uh, as a disclaimer, I'm also the communications chair for Michigo, which is a nonprofit trying to do the same thing statewide. Uh, so I'm a little biased there, but I think it's a great idea. What the heck, right? Um, and then uh, we also had on the show uh, the founder of a uh, cannabis friendly, I wouldn't call it, a, it's really a bud and breakfast, not really a bed and breakfast uh, place in Detroit called uh, the, the uh, Copper House, Detroit, run by uh, some black women. And they're uh, in an area uh, where there's a lot of black businesses. And because they're doing this, and not only are they having, uh, and it's mostly a weekend bed and breakfast kind of thing, but they also do events there, cannabis-friendly events. They just added a 1,000 square feet in the basement so they can host more events. And what they're actually doing is they're helping a lot of the other black businesses in, in, the, in the Avenue of Fashions area so that they're attracting more folks who are buying more stuff from the black businesses. So it's a win-win all the way around. And uh, there are, like I say, there's a number of, well, there's a certain hesitation on the part of a lot of the big players, like the big hotel motel chains, because it still is against the law federally. And, and there's other groups that are looking at it, but if they take any federal money, they're really kind of concerned that if they do something cannabis friendly that you know, the feds are going to jerk their money away. So we still have a lot of this bugaboo out there we need to clean up. But I mean... It's time to end this craziness. I mean, if people want to smoke, let them smoke, right? And so if they want to cater to folks who are smokers, it's a big opportunity because, you know, only Illinois and Canada around us are, are legal. Ohio, Indiana, particularly Indiana, talk about a conservative state, are not. But at least Ohio's got medical now. So, I mean, it's a really good chance for us to, you know, really get capitalize on two of our biggest industries, tourism and cannabis, to combine them to make money, attract tourists, win-win, right? Okay, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs>
Mike, who you got coming up next week? Do you know yet or not yet? No, not yet. We just, uh, I, I try to keep the show as topical as I can, try to, whoever the top newsmakers of the week are. And usually about this time, I'm thinking about who we get on the show. We're going to take the following week off. And then uh, I wanted to, if I may, I wanted to point out for those who, who want to really meet the 420 postcast, we're going to be at Canna Bash Fest in Muskegon on July 9th. We'll all be there. Uh, one of our Dan Sparrow and Connie Sparrow, who worked with us on that show, uh, will be the, well, we're there to kind of support them. But there's going to be 45 vendors there now, only seven or so are dispensaries. Uh, but a lot of them are, you know, really cool things like clothing and jewelry and artifacts. And, and they're having it at that big softball facility just outside of Muskegon. They're expecting five or six thousand people to show up. So if you want to meet my crowd, and trust me when I say it's a pretty mellow crowd, particularly since this is a consumption event, uh, that'd be a great place to get introduced to. Uh, and you don't see that many events on the west side of the state. Most of it's down here where we are in southeast Michigan. So it's nice to have an event on that side of the state. And I originally hail from the Grand Rapids area, so I'll certainly be over there. And, and I would at cannabashfest.com. And if you buy one of the VIP tickets, Dave and Blaine, you get the big grab bag with $400 worth of free stuff in it. It's a heck of a deal. So I would encourage you to move fast, though, because those are going to go like hotcakes, right? It's only a buck 25 for the VIP ticket. So, and you get to meet all the cool people in the tent, like the 420 cast, you know? <laughs> well, that, that's worth the price of admission. Right, right there. That's the price I mean, of admission. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, I'll be shaking hands all day long, right? You know, so get some babies and all that stuff. Thank so, anyway, you. I'll turn the show back over to you guys. I, I've done all my shameless plugs. We have a couple of questions that popped in. Uh, one, th this one, Robin uh, from Jamal Thomas. He, mm -hmm. he and his wife are members of a Detroit urban farming community. Uh, they purchased an old school building in Highland Park to start a hemp research farming operation on soil remediation in neighborhoods with tons of demolished lead contaminated homes. And he's asking how has structuring your organization as an LC3 benefited you? So would you explain what it, cause I didn't, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what an LC3 is. Sure. Um, thanks Jamal. That's exciting. I have, I have connections to Detroit where our farm is just like a quarter mile from Wayne County. Um, it sounds real. You're doing a really exciting project. Um, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, and so L3C is an acronym for Low Profit Limited Liability Company. It is a legal entity business structure that the state of Michigan offers. Um, not all states offer this legal entity structure. It is a hybrid, an easier way to think about it, it's a hybrid between a for-profit and a nonprofit. Um, we are not a nonprofit corporation. We don't have a governance structure or board. and um, I am um, I'm I'm trained as a lawyer and I have years of experience in nonprofit as a president and executive director and starting them. I've started several um, over the years and I decided to start Pop Farms as an L3C. Um, and the benefits to that are one, complete control. My team, I have a team of advisors. We have complete control um, over what we do. Um, I have, you know, I lead the company and I have complete control. Um, and I, uh, there's easier governance structure to the organization. But the two main benefits, and this will um, 
depend on your circumstances is one, theoretically, it allows you to fundraise um, and foundations can, you know, like-minded mission, similar foundations can donate money to you and not lose their nonprofit status or foundation status. That's a legality issue. And it's, but it's there. I don't think it's actually has ever happened, but the idea is you can be a limited liability company and still get um, mission directed foundation um, donations. And the benefit of the low profit limited liability structure, which really drives um, my decision was it allows in a legal sense for us to maximize three bottom lines, profit, people, places. Any for-profit business as a legal entity in the eyes of the law are mandated to maximize profit. That is what they're supposed to do. There's no legal room for people or places, but the L3C carves out this legal exception saying you are allowed to make money and not focus completely on profit, but you can also prioritize people and places. And this is important because we have investors. There are um, 12 members in, in, in addition to me who um, have funded Pot Farm since 2017. And I, as the leader, the decider, am not legally compelled to make all decisions that are directed towards maximizing profit. My company can also prioritize people and environment in place. So if you're gonna have investors, it's legal protection. They can't come back and sue you for not maximizing profits. Not that I'm concerned. Our members are fantastic, not, but like there is that legal protection, but also possibly fundraising. That was a long-winded answer, but it's, it's because a lot of people don't know about this legal structure mm -hmm. in Michigan. I like to educate people when I have an opportunity to. Yeah, I'm only aware of a couple of companies that are actually using it, uh, and it's kind of, I wouldn't call it experimental, but like you say, it's in the middle. It's its tough to be a for-profit corporation or a non-profit. This kind of combines the best of both. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. All right, we have one more question, then we'll get back to you, Robin. Mm -hmm. So Cheryl is asking, and this is a great question. I'm sorry, I don't have a good answer for you, Cheryl. But uh, will this hemp plant in Indiana be leading to someone creating hemp fabric? What a great question. I want to buy American-made hemp fabric. Is that available anywhere? No. <laughs> Damn it. Not that I'm aware of yet. So uh, it's coming. Give it time. We're early. If I can add to that, Carhartt, our Michigan-bred mm -hmm. clothing company, is actively pursuing hemp. They've, I've actually was contact. I'm like, we're so small. I can't provide our Carhartt with industrial fiber. Um, but their Carhartt is actively bringing hemp fibers online. They, they were involved in our 2021 expo. We had uh, some other people. So I, I know they're, you know, that that's on their radar. Yeah. But we need the processing set up. We just mm -hmm. don't. Yeah, that's, that's so, so I'm going to put a little bit of input in here. I, I believe that it probably will lead to a lot of different things. Uh, this company has been doing this for a long time in the Netherlands, and I'm sure that's probably one of the things that they're providing. Um, so I'm taking a shot here, but yeah, I think yeah, this is not a CBD operation. This is industrial. So right. yeah, this yeah, it's for fiber, yeah, right. fiber and fiber and herd both. So right, yeah. So I, I believe that it probably will. And this is the 
it, it, it hurts because we're all taking this step forward a little at a time and making it work. But, um, you know, this is the infrastructure that needs to get built uh, without this infrastructure, right? The textile manufacturer can't make it because they don't, we don't grow it and process it for them yet. So all these things are happening um, and a lot of great things are happening for sure. So yes, I, it's, it's coming. And, and I've heard from reliable sources that in the auto industry, the OEMs had before GM, you know, they assemble, but they don't really make the parts that comes from the tier ones. And I know Lear is actively looking for uh, hemp farmers to supply them so they can make fabric for the OEMs. So, I mean, and now with Carhartt, there's a couple of really big players that could kind of get this thing in motion, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's coming. Here in time. Mm -hmm. So, Robin, let's talk about what you're doing on your farm and what the results have been. Yeah, I'm going to share my screen again. We have some wrap-up. So, we left off, you know, all multiple reasons why you can cult how you would cultivate resiliency within your farming system. But in terms of your business, let's see, is it delayed or is it going to go? There we go. So in terms of your business and your life, we talked about how you can dramatically lower your, your costs through these systems on the farm inputs, reduced or no irrigation, even no fertilizer, no herbicide, no pesticide. Uh, the plants can take care of themselves for lower labor. But on the flip side, when your plants have everything they need, you're going to get higher yields. And this is not, this is, we're living this at our farm and we've seen this, we've made mistakes and we've had trial and errors, but we've had some successes. And this is our 2021 harvest. This is our largest plant. It weighed more than 20 pounds. It was, uh, I don't know how tall it was. Um, this is one of our members um, carrying it to our drying facility. Um, and this was a seedling that we put in the ground in spring and in the, in the mandala garden I showed pictures of, which was in its fourth season. So really well-established, um, I don't know what that is, really well-established living soil. We, the only thing we did was maybe irrigate it a few times in, in the dry season. Yeah. Um, so we've seen these results. This is, this is happening at our farm. So if you're interested, if I piqued your interest, I have been trained by the Soil Food Web School for the last three years. I've learned, I've finished their foundation courses. I'm certified to do soil biology testing with a microscope. I use it on our farm all the time. And last fall, I started offering it to others. So you could go online and order soil biology tests from our website. You can also um, contact me if you're interested in, you know, consultations or um, I even sell some of our compost that we make to inoculate your soil. So reach out if you're at all interested in connecting on what we're doing. But I will also say, I wanted to give this screenshot. It's freezing, let's see here. List of resources. If you are at all interested in doing a deeper dive here, um, I think the... So www.potfarms.com would be the place to start at then. And yeah, I have my contact information. It might, uh, I think I'm pushing my laptop to its limit. Um, let's see if I can. Maybe if you close that little pop-up window, you can change real quick. Okay, let's close that. There we go. 
this is what I wanted. Take a screenshot of this. Free, and I would say, check out, there's lots of free information. Um, soil Food Web School, Regen Soil Conference, the Soil Regen Conference, search permaculture, um, uh, follow regenerative agriculture groups on social media. There's a lot, a lot of free content. You can start really getting your mind around these ideas. I'll say that, you know, this is happening on a large scale. We are small scale at pot farms, but there are those figuring out how to use these principles on large scale farms, 750 acres in Indiana. There's several thousand acres in, in Montana. Um, there's these examples of using equipment to get this, these principles implemented. Um, so I don't need to keep it just, you know, to our small niche side of the corner. There's people are learning and experiencing um, and sharing what they're learning. And it's a lot of it is just really freely available. And then I also wanted to touch base. So contact me if you're interested, but I also wanted to follow up on Mike. So we started off as a marijuana company back in 2017. Yeah, that was where the pot farms would fit in real nicely, right? So And that we will get to that. We still intend to get a marijuana license. We were pre-approved actually, and then hemp became available in 2019. And we just jumped ship to hemp because we really wanted to focus on the farming and we really wanted to focus on the job creation. And we've been doing that and you kind of let the marijuana side thing, uh, like maybe the dust settle a bit more and maybe time will allow our way of growing cannabis be accepted on the marijuana side of things and talking about tourism, our new farm, our goal is to be a destination farm and possibly a micro business where people come out to our farm, enjoy, consume here and uh so that's our vision that's what i was gonna say a micro business would be a good fit for you because uh, yeah. that that's as you all know that they don't don't allow you to sell anything but your own product you yeah. know so so well, robin is there any um you, is there any other uh i want to say um opportunities available for like this summer for people to uh attend or go to learn any more about this in the near area like in indiana or ohio or you know, are you doing it? You're probably not doing anything on your farm this year, like a demonstration or anything or? No. Um, so we always are. So I would say follow us on social media. We are active on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. And uh, I'm posting those kind of opportunities as much as I can. Um, I know there's a hempcrete uh, workshop coming up in Chelsea, Michigan in July. I mean, mm -hmm. I think you added that to your email yeah, um, gross, last yeah. time. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. A matter of fact, oh, cool. I didn't need to steal your thunder. I, no, 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 yeah. that's good. So it's a good segue. Nice right? segue from he, he likes that. Yeah, so. and we're there you uh, go. we're we're at the uh, top of the hour. So, right. so Blaine, do you have a, a recipe? You have. You know, a I do, Dave. Again, I want to thank Robin for taking time out of her schedule and uh, sharing her information. Uh, this is great, great information to share. A lot to learn um, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, and it's good to know that people are trying to do this on a scale situation as well, um, because that's what it's going to take to change a lot of this stuff. So yeah, for sure. Yep. So, uh, so Dave, I don't know if you have um, Kim's. Um, she didn't send me a poster, but maybe you can bring up her website or something we can show. But anyways, on uh, yeah, in, I don't uh, have it, Lee. You don't? Okay, that's fine. Um, so July, that's going to be July eighth and 9th. Uh, in Chelsea, Michigan. It's a two-day workshop that Kim Crows is putting on. 
uh, regarding uh, hempcrete building with material. Uh, now, what's a good segue for that is we're going to do a show in two weeks. We're not going to do a show next week, but on the 23rd, we're going to do another IHEMP hour, and we're going to have Kim on to talk about that. Uh, also, we've invited um, her, her her cohorts or other crew that was at the expo as well. We invited Rachel and Jacob and Alex to be on the show. Um, so the 23rd will be a great show. We're going to be talking about hemp building material, hemp products, and where that's all going. And uh, maybe Jacob can give us an update on what's happening uh, on the hempcrete uh, being allowed into the building material codes. So exciting where that is going for sure, for sure on that. Um, anything else, Dave? You want to throw anything else, Mike, before we kind of wrap or it up? We're just waiting for the emperor now. So well, that's coming. Yeah, that's coming. Um, so we have today, because it's that time of year, it is strawberry season for those that have not yet uh, gone out and got their strawberries and freeze them and do them. Uh, that's this time of year that this week is going on great. I've seen them out. I've seen some of the uh, roadside uh, markets available for that. But before I get into that, I did want to bring, uh, talk about this hemp seed oil, the natural oral care ingredient. So there you go, Mike. Now a new thing here. Hey. We know hemp seed oil is beneficial for hair, skin, and our overall nutrition. But did you know it is an excellent natural oil care ingredient? Our dental health isn't just about our smile either. Studies show how gum inflation and tooth decay are linked to conditions like cardiovascular disease and diabetes, making the efficacy of our oil product a necessity. So uh, another way you can, uh, you can use your hemp seed oil is a little bit of toothpaste in there. So, so go to downonthefarm.biz, get some hemp seed oil and mix it into your toothpaste? Is that yep. what you Or you can just pick a swill of it and swig it around and uh, put it on. I saw an advertisement for it for uh, olive yeah. oil talking about it, but hemp seed oil is much better and, and it tastes a lot better yep. too that way. So there you go. So today, today we have strawberry hemp smoothie, a light uh, strawberry smoothie is a perfect way to usher in the season of fresh produce and welcome warmer mornings. Hemp seed takes the place of nuts, creating a protein rich smoothie and also provides a dose of omega-3 fatty acids. So, um, you know, we're up on our game a little bit. So, wow, it looks good. Yeah, Ooh. now I can't, now I'm going to have to take a little swig of this. Did you make it or Becky? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give credit where credit's due. There, Becky made this one. Today. Oh yeah, the the she garnished it with a nice little strawberry. What, what's on top there? She's well, oh, that's that's what there. I was trying to show. It. That's the hemp seed hearts on there. Oh, so, mix them in, but she also put a little on top. What, so what makes a very nice artist. presentation for everybody. So beautiful. But really, uh, really simple ingredients here: uh, two humps, two cups, hauled strawberries fresh or frozen i like to use them frozen because it just makes it a little more thicker and makes it like more like a, a shake kind of thing uh, frozen banana if you want to throw that broken into pieces um, half a cup of water three tablespoons of hemp seed and a tablespoon of pure vanilla extract you place all the ingredients in a blender and blend it so smooth and then you can enjoy and have a very healthy uh, um, refreshing shake smoothie now is there somewhere online where someone can buy hemp seeds Mm -hmm. There is, there is a for sure. If you go to downonthefarm.biz, you can you can order some hemp seeds there. We had them at the expo. Um, we got a fresh batch in, so those are available for there. Um, of course, I'd love you to buy them for me, but there are other places you can get them as well. But might as well get them. Might as well order them for me and help me out. Help out the small farmer. There you go. That's for sure. So, so we look forward to everybody uh, joining us again on uh, June twenty third. 
an exciting show with Kim Crows, talking about her upcoming project on July the 8th and 9th. Uh, Hempcrete Workshop going to be in Ch- Chesney, Michigan. Chelsea. Chelsea, Michigan. Thank you. That's where it's going to be at. So looking forward to that. Excellent. All right. Thanks again, Robin. Really appreciate your time. And I had a lot of fun. Thank you. That was good stuff.